Well, good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July weekend. I hope you have some fun things planned. Um, Susan just asked, are we going to use the parking lot at Bed Fed to watch fireworks tomorrow night? And I said, yes, we are. So if you have uh, a desire to see the fireworks, but you're far away and you want to come into town to watch those, I'm going to be hanging out at the Bedford Federal parking lot there on 16th and K and you can come and join me. We'll have a good time. It's not going to be, I'm not going to cook brats or anything like that. It's just bring your lawn chair and sit and sit with me. So let's keep expectations realistic, but it'll be fun. We'll see some great fireworks. It's a great place to watch them. I don't know about you guys, um, but I've had some very interesting friendships in my life. Some of them were surprising. Have you ever had a friend that on the outside, you, people would go, what in the world do you have in common with each other. How did you become friends? Anyone have a very unlikely friendship going on right now in their life? I love those unlikely friendships. I'm going to tell you about one of mine. It began in 2016. I was up at the office, and I got a call from the reception saying, hey, James Mumford is here to see you. And I'm going, James Mumford, I know that name. How do I know that name? James Mumford was the director of the African American Choral Ensemble at IU. Very well-renowned person within the African American population, and I knew that he had been coming to our church. Now, why he had been coming to Sherwood Oaks, I do not know. We were 99.9% white, and as the director of the African-American Choral Gospel Ensemble, he had a definite niche of music that we did not do anything with. Um, we were white, and we did white music, and so why is he coming to our church Asked him later, and he says, well, I felt Jesus there. I go, okay, that's a wonderful thing. I'm glad you're here. Our friendship began a little bit tentatively. In fact, I've got a picture. So this was, uh, so you know who that little girl is right there? Do you recognize Zara Gerges? Yeah, that was how many years ago? That was a long, that was six years ago, I bet. Yeah. Our friendship began tentatively. Um, I was white, and not just white, but like white, white. I'm super white. <laughs> And he was black, and not just black, but like, if you talked to him for more than five minutes, you knew that he was black, black. He was not blackish, he was black. Perhaps our friendship would have just sort of remained on this very tentative professional level. He would sing at the church periodically, except that he got a diagnosis of kidney failure. And he called me one day and says, I need someone to take me up to Indianapolis to the hospital. I have no family around here. Could you do that? And I'm like, uh, okay, sure, I can do that. Um, so that began sort of uh, almost a monthly trip to Indianapolis. And, you know, driving up and driving back a little bit of time. During that time, I got to hear his story. It was remarkably different than my story. You know, he grew up black in the 40s and 50s in the South. I grew up white in the 70s and 80s, let's say, up in uh, Indiana. That's different. I grew up securely middle class with mom and dad, uh, but he grew up raised by his grandmother. His mother worked as a domestic with a white family um, six days a week, and she made about 15 bucks, uh, and that was his experience growing up. In fact, his mother worked so much with the white family that it was probably not until his 30s, he said, that he didn't really in his heart believe that his mother loved the white kids more than she loved him, only because she was with the white kids more. <laughs> I love 
the beginning of school and the smell of new textbooks. Anyone remember? Can anyone smell that right now? Opening up a new textbook and smelling that smell? Well, every textbook Mumford remembers in his education as a child uh, was not a new textbook smell. It was, it was an old textbook smell, and it was already filled with notes and doodles from uh, about five or six years of white students who had had that book before it got to the black school, and black kids could use it. That's different than my experience. Of course, in the 40s and 50s, he was limited to the stores he could go into, the movie theaters he could go to, even the churches he could go to, and I never had to think about stuff like that. You probably haven't either. Because of his amazing vocal talent, he was trained as an opera singer, um, and his talent took him all the way to New York City. He was, a, he was uh, performed there in many different areas, but never was he allowed to take sort of a lead role in these operas because, as he said, no one wants to see a black guy kiss a white girl. I never had to worry about what I could do, who I could be, where I could go. He did. Now, it sounds like our conversations were all like really heavy, and they were not. We had a blast with each other. Um, we became very, very good friends. People used to joke that they should make a TV show about us. I said, no, no, we're better than a TV show. We're a feature-length film. And he's going to be played by James Earl Jones. And I'm going to be played by someone who looks like me, like, you know, I don't know, Harrison Ford. Um, and I started to feel like I sort of had this whole race issue down. Like, what's so hard about this? Why do we have so many issues? It's pretty easy. Maybe I could write a book. That would be something I could do. Until a moment came where I realized I still had a lot to learn. Um, by this time, he was really sick. And I would go up to Bloomington early in the morning and sort of make some breakfast for him, wake him up, get him started getting ready, make some breakfast for him, and then get him to dialysis by 8 o'clock. And then I would go to church and work until noon, and then I'd go pick him up at dialysis and take him home. And it was one of those occasions. I was running late. There was a lot of stuff to do, and I was trying to get some little breakfast ready for him. And I knocked something off the kitchen counter. It spilled. It broke. And sticky stuff went all over. I don't even remember what it was now. But he heard it, and from the bedroom, he's trying to get ready, and it's taken him a long time because he's just tired and old. And uh, he says, what was that? I said, it's nothing, Doc. You know, don't, don't worry about it. I've got it. He goes, I heard something. What was it? I said, I broke a glass. I'm clean. He goes, oh. And I hear him getting up and starting to walk in. I said, Doc, don't worry about it. I've got it. I've got it. Don't come in here. I didn't want him to fall on the juice or, or cut his feet on the, on the glass and mostly... Don't slow down the progress we're making because we're under the, under the gun of time. No, nothing would do. He had to keep walking. And I said, Doc, don't come in here. Don't come in here. Nope. Uh, here I'm groaning and walking. Then he stand at the door. I said, Doc, stay out of here. And he looked at me. And he turned around. And he walked back to the bedroom. I finished getting stuff ready. Took the plate into him, and he ate it without saying a word to me. And then he finished up, and he says, thank you very much for fixing my breakfast, but never tell a black man where he can go in his own house. I said, Doc, it was not, he goes, never tell a black man where he can go in his own house. I said, Doc, it was, never tell a black man where he can go in his own house. 
And it took about three times before I realized, hey, there's more to this story than my experience. <laughs> there's a whole history attached to this moment. Today we're talking about an issue that honestly I've kicked down the, the street for a long time, but it's time to do it. Um, we're going to talk about how we deal with people who are different than us. And I don't know about you, um, but I know that I've got a lot still to learn. And I think the church does too. We still wrestle with this stuff. So let's pray for direction from God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, um, you love us. We sang the song growing up, Jesus loves the children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. And we want to be like Jesus, so we pray that we can love like you as well. Um, instruct us in your heart as you instruct us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I know that I talk about traveling a lot, but about three weeks ago, I and several others were wandering around the ancient city of Athens, and, and we had a view from our hotel of the Parthenon. Do we have, there it is. Look at that. That's from our hotel. That is amazing. Amazing. Even now, 3,000 years from the point where Athens was really at its prime, it is easy to see, even among all the architectural ruins, it's easy to see why the Athenians took so much pride in their role as sort of the authors of the, and, the, and the cradlers and nurturers of modern civilization. Since some of the greatest thinkers of all time were from Athens, the Athenians believed that, that they were mentally and genetically superior to everyone else in the, on the, on the, in the world. Because they had so many philosophers and poets, they believed they were morally superior to everyone else in the world. And <laughs> they thought they were spiritually superior. After all, you didn't have to wander far in Athens to see a temple to this god or a statue of that other god. Among all mankind, they believed that they were sort of at the top of the heap. And since the beginning of time, the Athenians are no different than the rest of us. We are always trying to figure out ways to sort each other out and sort of figure out who's better and who's not so great. In the biblical story, oftentimes it's divided between the Jew and the Gentile. In classical Greece, in Athens, it was Greek versus barbarian. And as the song went, Greeks ruled and barbarians drooled. The Greek playwright Euripides wrote this, it is reasonable for Greeks to rule over barbarians, but not barbarians over Greeks. For barbarians are by nature slaves, but Greeks free men. And Euripides wasn't alone. Athenians believed, even among all the rest of the Greeks, Athenians believed that they were sort of superior, gifted by the gods to be genetically superior. And here's where the story gets really interesting for me. You see, you remember at the end of Matthew and in the beginning of Acts where Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. They do that. They were actually obedient to what Jesus said. And so, so Peter and, and some of his people, they focused on Jerusalem and Judea. We talked about Philip about a month and a half ago. And Philip goes to Samaria, which was sort of on the do not travel list. 
Um, but they went, and they shared the gospel with the Sumerians. And then a guy named Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the most Jew of Jews, like Mumford was black, black, and I'm white, white. Oh, Paul was Jew, Jew. And uh, uh, amazingly, he's the one that goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the pagans, the Greeks, the barbarians. Paul's the one that goes there. And he ends up in Athens. And like our crew, I think, I think Paul wandered around the city. He, he went around. He certainly saw all the statues. He saw the temples to Zeus and other, other places that we got to visit. He walked up the, uh, the Acropolis, the high part of the city. And he, he wandered around that amazing temple to Athena and the other gods up there. And he, it had to be amazing. It had to be amazing. I mean, I was impressed even with the ruins, but the scripture says that Paul was distressed. Not distressed because of the statues and idols. He certainly knew what he was to, to expect when he got to Athens, but distressed because he saw all these people putting their trust in something that wasn't real. But instead of preaching judgment and condemnation, instead of pointing his finger and calling down hail and fire from heaven, Paul does something interesting. His heart opens to these people that are so different from him, and he engages them in a spiritual conversation. Acts 17, 17 says this, so he, Paul, Paul reasoned in the synagogue um, where the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, Greeks, would worship, as well as in the marketplace. We wandered through some of those marketplaces where people would just gather and discuss things, and he would go to the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, and he would dialogue with them. And what they shared and what they talked about intrigued the Athenians. Who is this God you're talking about? A God who died and was resurrected. And because Athenians sort of prided themselves on their open-mindedness, we could learn something from the Athenians. They wanted to know more. So Paul gets a chance to oblige them. He says this, men of Athens, I can't help but notice that you have all of these statues to all of these gods. You're very, very spiritual, it looks like. You have a god for every occasion and season and statue, even to one that you call the unknown god. Just so you don't miss any and inadvertently leave one out. So let me tell you about this unknown god. And here's Paul's words. He says, this God made the whole world and everything and everyone in it. Did you catch that? He created us. We did not create him. And as beautiful as these temples are, this God cannot be constrained or contained in any of them. In fact, he needs nothing from us. Instead, we need everything from him. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us everything else. And this is our core verse for the day in Acts 17, verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. I was talking to Sean about this, and he said, he said when, in his studies, he says, when Paul says from one man, in the original Greek, this can be translated from one blood. God made all the nations. We are increasingly living, even in Bedford, Indiana, a multiracial and multicultural 
community. And that means there are microcosms of different cultures even around us. Even here in this church, we all have little cultures that we live in. So how do we, as God's beloved children, live in a multicultural society? And Paul would tell us that as God's dearly beloved children, we should live as God's only begotten son taught us to. Philippians 2 verse 5 says this, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now what is the mindset of Christ Jesus? Well, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 tells us. He says, In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Years ago, there was a book, and the beginning line of this was, it's not about you. And this is what Philippians is saying. It's not about you. And remember, Galatians 3, verse 26, remember this. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself now with Christ. I was talking to the team before. All of us put on clothes this morning because we want the first thing we see of each other not to be us in our full and undisclosed glory. We want them to notice other things besides who we really are. Well, there's a picture here that Paul uses. He says, clothe yourself in Christ so that your differences and your weirdness and your abnormalities aren't the first thing people notice. You are not the first thing people notice. The first thing people notice is what you're clothed in. More importantly, who you're clothed in. You're clothed in Christ. I love this. So he says, now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean there are no longer Jew and Gentile. Yes, there are. That doesn't mean there's no longer slave or free. Well, yes, of course there are. And that doesn't mean there's no longer male or female. Yes, we still have divisions of male and female. But the way that we divide and break people up and prejudice against each other, those old and tired divisions are gone. A new type of family is emerging. And this new family is created when those old walls of division that separated us are busted up and demolished by the cross. Here's what Ephesians 2.14 says. I wish this was our core verse because I love this. For he himself is our peace. Let's read this together. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Can you think of walls in your life between you and others? Maybe it's a black-white wall. Maybe it's a Jew-Gentile wall. Maybe it's a Greek-barbarian wall. Maybe it's a different wall. But those walls are very often characterized by suspicion and fear. And as Paul says, this, uh, this hostility. But the new family is characterized not by some sort of ethnic or ideological purity test, but by peace. Peace between God and Paul makes very clear that this is as important, peace between each other. Are there still differences? Yes, there are. I look at my own family. My sisters and I are very different. Pam would say, amen. But we're all the same family. And we don't always see eye to eye, Pam would say. That's right. But when we don't see eye to eye, we try to understand each other. 
We try to hear each other out and listen to our stories. So how do we do this? Well, again, we look to Jesus. Philippians 2.7 says, He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. So we humbly serve others. This is challenging for the church. Oftentimes, our idea of serving is to go somewhere and build a house or, or um, um, help people share food, um, share medical attention. And these are all wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. But very often, we can find ourselves with this back, back attitude that people should be very grateful that we showed up to do this for them. And that puts us in a position of power and then in a position of deep, deep need. And so we become the dominant and the helpful and the power component of that relationship. But Jesus offers this, this really interesting picture of what it means to serve in a way that invites real ministry to happen. And it's an unexpected story, but you're going to all be familiar with it. It's the story of when he comes into Samaria and his disciples go off into the no local town to get some food. And he stays there at a well and a woman shows up. And he engages this woman in conversation. And he says this, as you're drawing water from this well, would you mind giving me a drink of water? Jesus was thirsty. Jesus had a need. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus had a need. But what did Jesus not have? He didn't have a bucket. <laughs> he couldn't access the water. The woman had a bucket. She could get to the water. She also had a need. She wasn't aware of that yet. But that combination of sort of need and the ability to serve combined into this amazing opportunity for real, eternal, and lasting ministry to happen, to share the gospel. So to humbly serve means to serve without an attitude of, aren't you glad I came to help? To humbly serve means to simply show up where God is already working and join him there. And it looks like this. Hey, I love what you're doing. Can I join you? It looks like this. <laughs> Listen, I'm not here to offer suggestions. I'm just here to help you do what you're doing. Can I help you? It's putting aside personal agenda and the need for recognition and simply helping. In addition to helping, humbly helping, we humbly listen. There's this account in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter of a man named Jairus. It's an important mission. Life and death hang on the balance. And Jesus is on his way and Jairus is like, let's go, let's go. And the disciples are like, let's go, let's go. There's a whole crowd of people following Jesus and something happens while they're in this mass of people. In this mess of people, someone touches the hem of Jesus' garment and he feels some sort of power transfer in that moment. And he stops and he says, what just happened? And a woman who has had an issue of blood, and I don't know what that issue of blood was. Was it something she caught? Was it something she was born with? Was there something that happened to her that caused this now to be part of her life? I don't know. But this woman has touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and he senses this power transfer, and he turns and demands to know, who, who touched me? And timidly, fearing that she's done something really, really wrong, she says, it was me. And then the scriptures say, she tells him 
her whole story. Now, can you imagine, have you, can you put yourself in a position where <laughs> you got things to do? Ministry needs to be happening. You've got people around you saying, chip chop, chip chop, let's go, let's go, let's go. You got a crowd around you just demanding your attention and screaming at you and noise and dust. You've got someone who is desperately needing your attention over here. And yet, Jesus stops. And all that stuff is swirling around him. And he stands there and he looks at her deeply in his eyes. And he puts down his cell phone and he puts it in his pocket. He puts away his day planner. And he says, tell me your whole story. I'm listening to you. I love that picture. David Allen says this, being heard is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Being heard is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. One of our values at Sherwood Oaks is that we tell life-changing faith stories, but inherent in the telling is the listening. And listening to people tell their life story can challenge our own perceptions in really fresh ways. Celeste Heard, she speaks, she's a speaker, and she says, when you're inviting people to tell their story, always be prepared to be surprised and amazed. You will never be disappointed. There were times when Mumford would tell me about his experience and his, his perceptions of reality and perceptions of white people. And there was very often times I'd go, I would say, wait, hold on just a second. I'm white. Are you telling me that's true of everyone? Many times he would tell me stories. I'd go, no, 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 that's not how it works. But one of the things that you, you learn in listening is that, is that it's not about you. And having him tell the story allowed me to sort of understand my story in a fresh way, too. And thankfully, I listened. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I love that picture of Jesus stopping and maybe even sitting down with this woman as she poured out her whole story. The story of rejection and being devalued and he puts his arm around her and he draws her close and he says you're healed and now you're free and when we do the same when we get close to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit we get to be right there at that table where jesus is we get to sit right there with him and experience what that means when we simply sit and listen and resist the urge to get defensive and argumentative and we we just listen we will always be amazed at the privilege of sitting alongside Jesus finally like the Athenians we want to be open to learning new things don't we they said tell us more about this God who who died and rose again as our group explored around Greece in the evenings, I loved asking the question, so what did you learn today that you didn't know yesterday? And it took a couple of days before the, the group at my, at my dinner table sort of got used to that and, and actually had something to, 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 
to, to, sh to share back. The first couple days are like, wait, are we supposed to be learning stuff on this trip? <laughs> you know, it takes humility to admit that you don't, you don't know everything. And so the last thing, in addition to humbly serving and humbly listening, we humbly learn. Because everyone knows something you don't. Everyone you meet knows something that you don't. The truth is that I can't live your life. I can't live Alex's life. I can't live Doug's life. But I can learn from their story. So taking a humble and teachable posture validates that their experience, though it's different than mine, is also true. So to remain a learner, I ask myself these questions. Okay, what do I know today that I didn't know yesterday? And what do I still need to understand? You know, I learned a lot about issues surrounding sort of the racial experience in America, but, but honestly, I still got a lot to learn. If you got a wallet on you and you pull out a dollar bill, you can see on the back of the dollar bill there's this seal. It's an eagle. It's a pretty impressive eagle, and he's got this little banner coming out. In fact, if you if you got a wallet, pull it out. See if you can find it on your on your dollar bills. And on the dollar bill, anyone know what that banner says? E pluribus unum. Anyone know what that means? Out of the many, one. That's sort of on our national mo our, our motto. Out of the many, one. Out of a diverse range of humanity, this new nation that we're going to celebrate this weekend is conceived where we recognize that all people who are part of this nation are created equal and deserve a shot at life and liberty and happiness. And the bigger issue is that, that this, this foundational premise is not just for those who are part of this nation, but we recognize that, that God established this. That all men are created and, des and deserve their shot at life, liberty, and happiness. I love that our country was founded on such a biblical principle. Now, have we always lived up to that principle? No, no, no. We haven't. Of course we haven't. Have we always lived up to that in the church? No, we certainly haven't. But let me just tell you something. When I listen to Mumford's stories about growing up in the 40s and 50s, and I compare that to those who are growing up in the, 40, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and tens and twenties of this nation, I can say without apology, we've gotten so much better in so many, many ways. This weekend, can I just give you permission to celebrate our nation's birth with pride? We're not perfect. We are not perfect, but we recognize that, and we're working to get better. And here in the church, we want to recognize and do better as well. We're not perfect, but each generation takes up the challenge to do better and be better, and we live facing forward with the reminder that out of the many, God is creating one new thing, his church. We're going to share in a time of communion, so if you're helping with that, you can go ahead and get ready. Here's what I want to make clear. The purpose and the mission of the church is not to resolve and solve all the issues of racism, sexism, all the isms. That, that's not the, the, the primary purpose that God left us here for. But when those walls separate us from the mission and the commission of Jesus to take the gospel and make disciples of every nation, then we have to acknowledge them. We have to, we have to address them. And we address them with this way, with this in mind. 
When asked what was the highest and most important commandment, Jesus answered this way in Matthew 22. Jesus says, well, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength. That's the first. That's the greatest commandment, love God. And the second one is, is like it. Not less than that, but like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bethel University up in Minnesota has this as sort of their, their motto as a church. Everything we do as believers is for God's glory and our neighbor's good. I'm going to say that again. Everything we do as believers is for God's glory and our neighbor's good. We love the Lord our God and we love our neighbor as ourself. We are in the midst of another week of sort of political and social sort of upheaval. There's this political and polemic talk. Every season there seems to be a new thing. This one's not any different. But whatever the latest social crisis is, there's always something. It should never move our eyes away from this ultimate mission that Jesus gave the church to help people meet and know and love and follow Jesus. Amen? He is our peace who has broken down every wall. As believers, we don't rebuild the walls that Jesus is breaking down. Can we just agree not to rebuild walls that Jesus is breaking down? Listen, learn, and serve. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we take the cup and the bread, um, if we look around this room, we can see all the ways that we are different. But the bread and cup remind us that you are making out of all of our differences one new creation, one new body, one new family. So help that begin here as we love one another and serve one another and listen and learn from one another. And may what happens here spread out. We pray this in Jesus' name. by our love. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.